Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. In this episode, we're talking about the VS versus SV debate in Biblical Hebrew. So in part two of this series on word order, you had a conversation with Vince DeCain about basic word order in Biblical Hebrew. DeCain's analysis is that basic word order in Biblical Hebrew is what he calls XV or verb second. However, um, and I think you indicated this in that episode, DeCain's view is not the predominant view in the field. So we wanted to have this conversation that does that presents uh, the predominant view, which is VS. But before we dive into that, I just wanted to ask why you thought it would be helpful or important to have that conversation with DeCain. Yeah, so part of it is just historical. We met at a conference in Israel. I met him and Elizabeth Cowper. So Elizabeth Cowper is a linguist at the University of Toronto, and she has a book on syntax, I think from 1992 that she published, an introductory book. And it's still in print today, uh, very widely used and it's just a very good introduction to syntax. And Elizabeth doesn't know anything about biblical Hebrew or Hebrew in general. So she comes to the conversation just as a pure syntactician with no skin in the game. So originally, I actually wanted both of them on to talk about their paper on the left periphery because specifically because the left periphery is all about what are the kinds of things that would affect movement in the clause, right? Specifically, what kinds of things would potentially change the order from, you know, VS to SV or vice versa. So because the, the left periphery is where you find topic and focus and other kinds of elements. So that's the reason why I wanted Decane and, and Calperon as well. She couldn't join, but... The idea was let's let's hear from a you know syntactician who doesn't have any idea what you know anything about biblical Hebrew, and let's talk about the left periphery um, from a theoretical perspective and how that would apply to a language like Biblingo, to to a language like <laughs> <laughs> to a language like biblical Hebrew. I think we awesome. should probably keep that in. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. With that, as we said, their position is not the predominant one. And so we think it's important to give time to the predominant view and, and really the debate as a whole and why there is a debate. So so that's what we're going to be doing. Once again, before we dive into the trenches of that debate, I just wanted to ask kind of one other big picture question of why, why does this debate even matter? Uh, why does establishing basic word order matter? And really, what's the payoff for us as, as people studying the biblical languages? Yeah, so I think in some ways it matters a lot and in other ways it matters very little so it matters a lot in the sense that basic word order our, our analysis of basic order does affect how we read the text and the meaning we get from it so if you say you know that basic word order is sv for example and you see a vs clause you might conclude that there's something going on there that is causing that shift right and 
the other way as well, right? So if you see VS and you see, or if you think VS is the basic order and you see SV, you might say, oh, well, the subject is fronted for topic or focus or whatever, right? And topic and focus have meanings, right? And therefore, right. that changes the meaning that we get from the text. So so in that sense, it is an important conversation. In another sense, it's not. Um, and it's particularly in the sense of how we define biblical Hebrew as you know a VS or an SV. So if we think about the different forms in biblical Hebrew, for example, the Vayiktol form, Everyone agrees across the board that Vayiktol is VS, right? So whether that then causes us to say that biblical Hebrew is also as a language VS or not, right, doesn't really matter all that much. So my take on on a lot of this in, in the conversation is we need to be more fine-grained and our question for figuring out meaning and how that interacts with syntax, our question is more about what order would we expect given this syntactic context and this verb form, right? So, so in that sense, you know, I, I think establishing what's basic in biblical Hebrew is more about, you know, what our definition of basic is than anything else. And Paul Krager actually mentioned this in the in the introductory episode. He said, "Well, you know, you can define basic as just what's most frequent, right?" And in that case, given our corpus of you know, a lot of narrative, you would just say VS because Vaiktol is so frequent and mm-hmm. and that's fine. If you want to do that, that's that's fine. Um and then as long as you're clear about about how you're defining about it. what basic means. Right. Exactly. And so Paul also said, well, we can also define, you know, basic as something like pragmatically neutral. Um and and then and then we have to define what that actually means, right? Mm-hmm. Um but either way, I think the the point is that what we're trying to get at is the meaning and how meaning interacts with the syntax. Um, and, and in order to do that, it's it's not necessary that we have a typological description of the language as a whole, right? Um, it is important that we um, that that we do have an idea of how different clause types behave. Right. Right. So in a sense, it doesn't matter as much where you land on what the basic word order of biblical Hebrew is. It's really how you got there and that analysis as a whole that matters and if that analysis is sound. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, again, just looking at another verb form of like the participle, for example, the participle is widely regarded. Um, I don't know of anyone that says it's VS order, right? Regardless of whether you think the language as a whole is VS, everyone just admits, okay, the participle is an exception or whatever. Um, it's SV, Right. Right. And the same thing is done with Vaiktol, as I already said, right? It's just VS. Everyone agrees with that. Mm-hmm. So if we're going through a list of languages and we're saying, you know, okay, this one is SV, this one is VS, this one is SV, you know, and if we come to biblical Hebrew and we say, okay, this one is SV, um, that's fine, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to say that. But but like you said, um the the person that does that would also have to admit that that for Vayiktol specifically, for those kinds of clauses, it's VS, right? right. Um, and, and so so that's the more interesting question of, um, you know, what we label it is may or may not be helpful. I mean, I think it, it, it can have its uses, but for pe- those of us reading the text, it's it's way more important to look at individual clause types or verb forms. Right, right. So it's, it's much more important to know that Vayiktol 
is Vs and the participle is Sv than it is to decide if whether the toll or the participle is the more basic clause type. Right. Um, and, and if you do that, that's fine as long as you're clear about what you're what you're defining as basic. But yeah, that's really helpful. I think from a practical level, and you you just kind of alluded to this, like those of us who are who are engaging with these languages, I think it's important because it's it's not going to go unnoticed that there is a lot of word order variation as you read biblical Hebrew, and and you're going to f- kind of fill in that question mark somehow because it's so different than English, for example. Um, and, and I've just heard kind of more popular level maybe explanations of like, uh, usually it's emphasis is, is the solution, right? Um, and so again, like you're going to notice it and you're going to give some sort of answer for it. And if you don't have a pretty th- well thought through analysis, you're going to end up with something just like, oh, whatever is at the beginning is emphasized, which is, is not the most helpful. Um, yeah. So in that practical sense, I think it's important to go through this as well. So so, so that's that's why we're, we're having this conversation um, and, and that's why we're going through these uh, analyses. So with that, let's, let's get into the debate. Um, like I said, the, the debate is kind of between the VS versus the SV position. So why don't you just give us kind of a quick lay of the land in terms of what the conversation looks like in the field, who the main contributors to, to the conversation are, and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so really, I mean, the field can basically be divided by um, Holmstead and Decane are the two big proponents of SV. So they both wrote their dissertations. Um in the late 90s, early 2000s, and basically concluded that um, biblical Hebrew is SV, right? Or verb second, um, which, you know, there are a slight distinctions between the two, but um, from talking to them both, I'm not sure if they know the distinctions between the two. Um, but but regardless, um, the, they, they are kind of the, um, I don't want to say founders of this position, but they are the the main proponents of this idea. Mm-hmm. And really the rest of the field, um, you know, as far as people that have published on this stuff in any sort of extensive way um, would be VS. Um, you know, I mean, I, I know, you know, people that are, that agree with Holmstead and Decane, particularly the people that are working in informal syntax. Um, and I think this is actually kind of the divide. Um, I can't really think of many people that would fall under VS that do work in like formal syntax um, in generative grammar. But um, yeah, pretty much everyone that I can think of um, that that does that kind of thing w- would be subject verb or, you know, verb second, you know, with its um, variations. But, but that is that is part of the issue here is that people are coming at this from different backgrounds. Um, so the people that do formal syntax, um, you know, will will accept. Uh, you know, when Holmstead draws a tree, they'll say, "Okay, like <laughs> this is the tree." <laughs> um, and and a lot of people that don't have that background um, just don't think in the same way about these kinds of issues, right? Um, yeah, I mean, we can get get more into the details of this, but but that's that's the basic um, divide right now. I don't want to say that there aren't exceptions to that. Um, to say that you know, 
um, everyone who is SV does form with syntax and everyone who is VS is not. Um, and, and I don't want to say that, um, you know, people who don't do formal syntax aren't doing syntax. Um, but I, but it is important because, um, some of the arguments that are made by people who, you know, espouse SV, Homestead and Decane, especially, um, are, are often not interpreted in the right way because they're coming from a different, they have, just have a different background, right? And that's fine. Um, but we have to recognize that and, um, le- learn their background in order to learn their arguments. Right, right. That's really helpful. So in uh, in this conversation, just to kind of make it practical, we're, we're limiting who we're engaging with and, and specific works we're engaging with. So um, we've already engaged with Decane in our, our episode with him, but we are going to engage here with Holmstead, specifically uh, a work he published in 2011 called The Typological Classification of the Hebrew of Genesis, Subject, Verb, or Verb, Subject. Um, so he's going to kind of represent the SV side, and then we're going to engage with two people representing the VS side of things. So number one is Moshavi, and she published a work in 2010 called Word Order in the Biblical Hebrew Finite Clause, and we're specifically going to look at the second chapter of that called Word Order, Markedness, in Biblical Hebrew. And the second person on the VS side that we're going to engage with is Horn Call, and specifically his work from 2018 called Biblical Hebrew Tense Aspect Mood, Word Order, and Pragmatic, some observations on recent approaches. So the way these all kind of line up is Moshavi published in 2010 and engaged with Homestead in that um, some, and then Homestead published in 2011, and again, kind of among other things, kind of directly engaged with Moshavi, and then Horn Call published in 2018, and again, among other things, kind of directly engaged with uh, Homestead's work there. So there's almost a bit of a conversation going on here. And so that's kind of how we're going to work through these things. So one thing I thought was interesting as I, as I read through these works is that <clears throat> there's a pretty consistent process that these scholars are going through to establish basic word order. It's kind of a simple two-step process. Uh, step one is establishing criteria. So what counts as basic or neutral or unmarked? These are all kind of the words that are are thrown around. What counts as that? What are the criteria we use? And step two is the analysis where those criteria are applied to the data, namely the biblical Hebrew texts, and what are the results of of that analysis? So step one is criteria. Step two is analysis, and they're kind of consistent in that process, but the differences are how they answer those questions. So uh, I want to dive first into step one, which is establishing criteria. And um, the first thing I just want to bring up is I think the most in in the previous episodes we've done, the uh, kind of definition for basic word order that has come up is pragmatically neutral. But as I read through these works, I realized it's actually a lot more complicated than that and that um, there's a lot more going on than just pragmatics. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, I think I do think this is something that we discussed with Paul Krager, um, just that there are cases where pragmatics affects word order. You know, something moves because it's in a focused position or a topic position. There are also cases where just something 
in the grammar affects the word order. So his example was German. Um, you know, the, the verb movement in German is, is grammatical. Um, so it's, it's not something where you know, you're going to see like a meaning difference, right? But, but, but you see a difference in, in order between, um, you know, independent clauses and, su- and subordinate clauses. And, and that is just triggered by the syntactic environment. So, you know, something like, again, and I actually mentioned this in that episode, the Vayak Tol form is a more grammatical type of movement that we're talking about, right? So, so when we say that the, the, the verb is always in the initial position and it can't be subordinated, right? Then it's in a different syntactic environment than a Katal form, for example, because, because it can be subordinated, right? It just has a very simple, um, you know, comparison between the two we can see that they're in a different place in the syntax because they have a different distribution, right? One can be subordinated, one cannot be. And so for whatever reason, the Vyaktol form is, you know, has this movement that's triggered. Um, so the, 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 the point here is that, you know, we have to take into account more than pragmatics when we just look at the order of the words on the page. Right. And I think that's important because, again, as I was reading this, sometimes pragmatically neutral was used as kind of shorthand for basic word order or something like that. But as you dig in, you realize that's that none of these scholars actually think that. Um, so I just think it's important to be aware of that as you maybe engage with some of this literature because it threw me off at first. Right. I mean, again, going back to the Vyktol and um, participle discussion, you know, no one is going to claim that Every single, I mean, I don't think they would, it wouldn't be a good claim if they did. Every single Vyak toll form is pragmatically marked, right? Or every single clause of the participle is pragmatically marked, right? Because it's in a different order, right? So those kinds of things, those differences in order are are grammatical, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're not about um, pragmatics. Right, exactly. And so what we can actually do is um, we can talk about the criteria that, that these three people do actually put forward as criteria for establishing basic word order. So um, there's there's a, a little bit of difference in kind of what labels are used, but for the most part, the same criteria come up in these works. So I might just list them first, and then we can kind of dive into how each person engages with them. So number one is frequency. Number two is distribution. Number three is text type or another label that is used as discourse genre. Number four is basic sentence criteria or clause type. And number five is pragmatics. So you can see pragmatics is one of of five. And again, different labels are used. And in fact, the discourse genre, uh, Holmstead kind of actually includes that under the clause type, but whereas Moshavi treats them differently. But those are kind of the five main criteria that come up. So I thought it'd be helpful to kind of work through these and see how Moshavi and Holmstead specifically differ on the criteria because they do differ quite a lot. So we can start with frequency. So, so Moshavi starts off with this and says, basic word order is sometimes used to mean the statistically dominant order, the one that is most frequent in spoken or written text. There's a widespread assumption that the pragmatically neutral word order is also the most frequent. So Moshavi is saying that there's a, an assumption that the pragmatically neutral, or again, that, that's kind of shorthand for basic word order, is also the most frequent. Now, Homestead 
disagrees with this and says a problem with the naive application of the frequency criterion is the issue of markedness. That is, many languages allow more than one order for some grammatical constructions, and so determining which order is basic must recognize the context of use. So he's simply saying that that frequency is not enough, and there's more at play here. And Moshavi actually recognizes this. So she says... A more serious problem is that it is theoretically possible that a word order might be pragmatically neutral, yet not the most frequently occurring one. However, this appears to be an atypical situation. So to put all that together, Moshavi says frequency, there's an assumption that frequency corresponds to basic word order. Holmstead says that you need to take more into account than frequency such as markedness. Moshavi says, yeah, in theory, the two could could be different, but it's it's atypical. So Moshavi then goes on to basically base her analysis on f- frequency. Um, so her conclusion is that that VS is m- the most frequent and therefore basic word order. So that's kind of the the breakdown of Moshavi versus Homestead on frequency. Yeah. So whenever we're dealing with frequency in biblical Hebrew, the question is, you know. Does it really matter given our limited corpus, right? So, you know, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast in another episode, but when you're dealing with corpora in language like English, you know, most corpus studies are done with something like 50 million words, right? I think in biblical Hebrew, we have something like 700,000, depending on how you define, you know, or count words or something. Um, But regardless, we, we just have, not nearly enough data for frequency to matter um, too much. And then on top of that, even our, the data that we have is is very difficult because it's not all from one time period. It's, it's not all one genre. And most of the time, what people do is they say, well, narrative is more basic. And so well, let's just talk about narrative, right? And then when you do all those things, you basically skew the data to just have a bunch of vitals, right? I mean, that, that this is what ends up happening. And then, you know, sure, frequency, like if you look at Vitol, everyone agrees that um, Vitol is going to be the most frequent in narrative. And therefore, VS would be the most frequent. So I, I think the, the question is, you know, if if it is an atypical situation that, that Dreyer says, which, you know, that may or may not be the case, right, for the most frequent order to be um to be not the basic order then the question would just be you know is biblical hebrew atypical or not and really whether or not biblical hebrew is an atypical language our corpus as you said is certainly atypical and so that has to be taken into account so moshavi could be correct and and if we had a, a bigger corpus for biblical hebrew we might find that frequency and basic word order do line up, but we just don't have that. Um, I, I did want to go back to something you said early on, and, and Holmstead kind of brings it up. He he quotes Maroka from 1985, quote, we're not interested in discussing the theory that VS order is normal because action is the most important piece of information to be conveyed by this sentence type called the verbal clause. In other words, by saying that VS is the normal word order, we do not mean that it is logically or intrinsically so, but simply statistically. So 
so the point here is that you can, again you can say that the basic or normal word order of biblical Hebrew is just the most frequent, but if if you're just defining basic as the most frequent, right? If you're not trying to make a claim about basic in like a semantic or pragmatic or whatever other sense. So again, we just have to be clear on like what we mean by basic when we're talking about whether or not frequency counts. So maybe there is a useful way, again, like if you're learning biblical Hebrew, it's probably helpful to know that you're mostly going to encounter VS because it's predominantly narrative, but you shouldn't necessarily draw broader conclusions other than like that's just what you should expect as a reader kind of thing right right and, and i think that's you know again an important point it is a it might be a helpful data point to say okay most of these clauses are going to be bs that you see right um but again if if our definition of basic word order is something like pragmatic neutrality then those two things might not necessarily correlate especially given, you know, like you said, the atypical corpus that we have. Homestead does actually use frequency as a criterion, but he then has all these other criteria that he kind of filters that frequency data through. And so those are kind of the rest that I listed before. So so the next one we'll look at is distribution. So Homestead defines this. He says, given two or more alternatives for a syntactic construction, the one that occurs in the greater number of environments is unmarked and hence the basic order. So Moshavi basically gives a similar definition, but the first thing we notice is that, again, we're not dealing with pragmatics here. We're dealing with syntactic environments. Um, and Homestead gives, I think, a helpful uh, example just to understand what he means by number of environments and all that kind of stuff. So he takes three verb forms in biblical Hebrew, vayaktol, katal, and yiktol. And he, he has specific data on this, but uh, he shows that the vayaktol occurs in two types of environments. One is verb subject, and the second is adjunct verb subject. But it the vayaktol does not occur in a subject verb context, a complement verb subject context, or a subordinator verb context. Whereas katal and yiktol both occur in all five of those syntactic contexts. So based on that, he says the vayiktol only occurs in two out of five syntactic contexts. So it is marked, whereas katal and yiktol occur in five out of five syntactic contexts. And so they're unmarked. So that's what he means by distribution and, and what it looks like. And so with that, he would not include vayiktol data in his frequency counts. Because again, he is using frequency. And so that data basically says like, you know, what we would conclude from that is maybe there's a reason why, you know, vayiktol is the way it is, right? Has this limited distribution that is not pragmatic, right? And that would be the point is you wouldn't expect every single vayiktol form to be, you know, the verb is emphasized, right? You That's probably not the case. Um, that's probably is not VS because of some pragmatic reason. It's VS because of some grammatical reason, right? And then then we'd have to look at Katal and Yiktol to see, okay, for verbs that can move, what's the order, right? So in, in the same way, and Moshavi does this as well, right? Moshavi throws out participle clauses. She just says, oh, they're SV, even though 
her basic order is VS, right? Let's just throw those out because um, they're they're pretty much always SV. So the the point would be, or, or she she gives some you know special reason for it. But but the point here is the the lack of subordinated Vyktols suggests that something different is going on other than pragmatics, right? Yeah, and so Moshavi comments on distribution and says that in practice, researchers usually rely on textual frequency in establishing basic word order because proving that a particular order is pragmatically neutral, and he, and again, here she's also referring to distribution, um, is an extremely involved procedure requiring the identification and classification of all discourse contexts in which each word order occurs. So really her argument for not using distribution but instead using frequency is that it's impractical to do what basically what Homestead did, but with every single clause type and every single kind of syntactic environment that it could occur in. It's kind of her her argument, which is fair to bring up, but I I wonder if it's it if it's a good enough argument for not using distribution just because it I guess the question is is it impossible or is it just really hard? If it's just really hard, then then we should probably still consider it. Well, I think the important point here is that it is often, the problem is that establishing something as pragmatically neutral is often circular. So what people will often say is basic order is VS. And so if I see an SV, I must conclude that the subject is there for topic or focus, (laughs) right? So, or if basic order is SV, and I see VS, right? I must conclude that the verb has moved for some reason. From you know, so so the problem is, um, you know, it, it is a a a real issue that in Holmstead's analysis, right? He has Katal unmarked, right, and Yiktol unmarked, right, and so he had to go through every clause in Genesis and say, is that topic or focus? Yes or no, right, um, or whatever other pragmatic you know, meaning you want to give. Um, and so when he did that, right, you, you know, you do have to, like, there is a, you know, an exegetical question in each passage. And it's not just, you know, Moshavi says it's an extremely involved procedure. It is that. But it's also, like I said, a potentially circular um, procedure because depending on how you define topic and focus too, you might see topic and focus in different places. Um especially topic because it's so close to subject. And so th- this it, it is a real problem of, you know, how do we figure out the distribution of these things? That being said, um, it is very important to do, right? Something like this, because it's just a fact that Katal can be subordinated and Vital can't, right? And so those facts need to be laid out on the table and they are significant for, for this discussion. Right. So... Those are the first two criteria. So both Homestead and Moshavi actually do use frequency, but when then Homestead takes the frequency and filters it with distribution, whereas Moshavi doesn't. The third, the next one that they engage is text type or uh, Moshavi also uses discourse genre. So Moshavi uh, 
mentions a few people. She says, Longacre in 1995 states that narrative texts are the most reliable for establishing basic word order, while Downing in 1995 states that conversational texts are to be preferred. Others claim that conversation and narrative are both suitable as source data as long as the discourse is oral rather than written, and that's from Croft 2003. So so this is what she means by text type or discourse genre. The examples are narrative, conversational, or oral versus written. Um, But she again kind of so she presents this as a criterion that some people use but ultimately she rejects it by showing that everyone just kind of disagrees on what's most useful um and so her conclusion she says explicitly quote basic word order in biblical hebrew does not vary according to discourse genre end quote so homestead on the other hand again very explicitly says the contrary, he says, genre convention is certainly operative in Hebrew with regard to the restricted distribution of toll clauses. So he's looking back at that analysis, which I discussed above. The toll form is used as the narrative verb and unlike the katal and yiktol verbs is confined to indicative semantics and a past temporal context. Um, and then he cites Cook from 2004 and 2006. The point here is that he, he talked about distribution before, but then kind of the answer he gives for why that distribution might be there, why Vayuktol is used differently in a marked way is text type or discourse genre. And therefore, text type or discourse genre is a, a criterion that we should look at. When you do look at certain, um, you know, discourse, like different types of discourse, um, you, know, you do have to be careful, right? So we do see in language after language, and again, Paul Craiger mentioned this, that um, narrative is actually not the best form, best discourse type to look at, um, just because there are funny things that happen with order. When you start telling, when you start presenting events in sequence, and and I think that's the issue here, the semantic, you know, the semantic idea of narrative is this idea of sequentiality. And for whatever reason, that will often trigger uh, a different verb form or a new word order um, in in many different languages. Yeah, and I think it's maybe an important point here that actually Homestead doesn't explicitly say text type or discourse genre is one of his criterion. He uses it as an ex- explanation for the, distri- the the distribution that he explains. So it's really the distribution of Vayuktol that he uses to consider it marked and then he says genre might be why um it's used in that particular way so he 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 lists his four criteria as frequency distribution clause type and pragmatics he doesn't list text type or discourse genre this is kind of just an aside comment he makes so maybe that's the way to think about genre is maybe it's not a good criterion for establishing what is basic but maybe it's something good to look back on your on your analysis and explain maybe why some of the uh, things might be behaving the way that they are so the the next criterion then is um, the basic sentence criterion uh, so this is actually what Vince DeCain in your conversation with him uh, really emphasized and um, it's what Homestead refers to as clause type, but he's he's referring to the same exact thing because he also quotes Schwarzka from 1988. So just to give that quote that, again, everyone that has been 
brought up in in these episodes goes to this particular quote for the basic sentence criterion. So it's very important. Stylistically neutral, independent, indicative clauses with full noun phrase participants, where the subject is definite, agentive, and human. The object is a definite semantic patient, and the verb represents an action, not a state or an event. End quote. Again, just to kind of go go back to the definition, there's a lot going on here other than pragmatics. There's a lot of it is is semantic. Uh, they're kind of semantic criteria. Um, really, the stylistically neutral at the beginning, I think, is where the pragmatic pragmatics comes in, and and that's actually how Moshavi explains it. Is there are all these semantic things, um, and then kind of the cherry on top is also, you know, filtering it through pragmatics. Um, and, and, and Homestead doesn't hide this. He, he points out explicitly that this definition includes a semantic notion. So he points specifically at indicative clauses rather than non-indicative. Uh, and so that's where, for example, modality comes into play for him. So again, um, Homestead is, is leaning a lot on this criterion. It's one of his filters that he filters the frequency, high frequency data through. Again, Decane uses it. Um, and so Moshavi, again, critiques this. And, and she does so by saying, Homestead statistics highlight the drastic effect of the basic sentence criterion on text counts. Out of thousands of finite non-subordinate clauses with overt subjects in Genesis, including Vaitol, only 175 remain, according to Homestead's calculations, and considerably less once more potentially marked clauses are omitted. Determining the word order of a language on the basis of such a small sample seems somewhat precarious. More importantly, basic word order in this approach bears little resemblance to the way the language is most frequently used. So there's kind of two critiques to the basic sentence criterion. Number one is when you filter the data through it, you end up with very little data. And number two, that your... Con the conclusion of your analysis after doing that doesn't resemble the way language is most frequently used. So that second critique is interesting because it's almost circular. Again, she's assuming that frequency is the main kind of metric sh that we should go off of. And so, so that I think is just not a, a substantial critique because Homestead just doesn't share that commitment to frequency. Um, but I think the first critique is, is a bit stronger that you know, after going through that filter, we only have 175 data points from Genesis. Um, and that's just not a, a lot to go on. Yeah, and it's true. I mean, it's just, it's not. Um, the question is, you know, it still might be the right thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. If it, it would be very unfortunate if, you know, that was what we were basing all of biblical Hebrews, you know, word order on. If it, but, it might still be right, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, it, it might still be this syntactically appropriate thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, really, again, it, it is only Genesis, right? So when you do factor in all the other books, like you are going to end up with more clauses. Um, but insofar as Genesis is, is reflective of biblical Hebrew in general or classical biblical Hebrew, then, you know, we can you know, we can use that 175 as just a data point, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, but, but again, but to Moshavi's point, we do have to say, okay, 
we don't have a lot of data to work with, <laughs> right? Um, and 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 that and that just should make our conclusions, um, not as, you know, final as as they would otherwise be, right? And the other thing that I think is important to point out here is that while Moshavi rejects the basic sentence criterion. She, she kind of gives the impression in some places that she's going purely based off of frequency, but that's not entirely the, the case. She does kind of have her own basic clause type metrics or, or criterion. So, and she, she, it actually comes out here. She says out of thousands of finite non-subordinate clauses with overt subjects, but even, even her work as a whole is about basic word order and finite clauses. And so I don't, I don't want to make a huge deal out of that, but to me, it seems like she's kind of taking some things to filter her data through as more basic. So finite is more basic than a non-finite, but she's not okay with having a long list of those things, it it kind of seems. Um, Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I said earlier, I mean, she doesn't include the participle, right? And so she says, oh, we we shouldn't include this. And so she's doing the same thing there that Holmesette is doing with Toll, right? They're both not including that data for a specific reason, right? It just so happens that when when Moshavi does it, she's not leaving out 900 clauses, right? <laughs> when Holmesette does it, he's drastically changing the statistics, right? But he's still only not counting one, you know, really two, but Vaikatol as well. Um, but the same sort of, you know, verbal form, right? He's just not counting. Um, so, so I think that's an important point here is, is that, like you said, they're both doing this, right? Um, they're both applying some sort of filter, right? The, the question is, should we apply, you know, this filter or not? Yeah. Or should we apply the whole filter, just part of the filter kind of thing? And, and I think all that, I mean, I think the, the bottom line is that Moshavi is absolutely right that we have a data problem, but that doesn't mean we have a methodology problem. Um, is, is kind of my big takeaway with right. with it some of those critiques. Unfor- I mean, it is just unfortunate. It is unfortunate. We, yeah. we have a data problem regardless, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So that brings us to the last criterion, and that is pragmatics, the, the one that, that we kind of mentioned in the beginning. So this is one that Holmstead, again, explicitly states is, is, is one of his criterion. And so this is kind of how he talks about it. He says, at the core of this approach, the approach meaning using pragmatics, is the recognition that the majority of language data contains pragmatically marked or non-neutral clauses. Even for languages that have a more rigid word order, such as English, pragmatics can produce extreme but grammatically acceptable examples as with, quote, into the room walked the prime minister, end quote. A VS clause with a fronted locative prepositional phrase Certainly not basic word order in English. So Homestead also says one more kind of important piece about his approach to pragmatics. He says the operative pragmatic notions for Hebrew are topic and focus, both of which motivate the fronting of constituents, which in turn appears to motivate VS order. So um, Moshavi then critiques this approach by saying a difficulty with these results 
lies in the procedure used to weed out the pragmatically marked clauses. Although contrast is one kind of context likely to contain a pragmatically marked clause, there are many types of pragmatic functions that do not involve contrast, including the non-contrastive varieties of focusing and topicalization, as well as other less common functions such, such as marking simultane, si simultaneity and anteriority or marking the onset of a new narrative unit. If clauses appearing to have any of these functions are omitted as well, the total number of clauses in the data is drastically reduced, leaving only 65 clauses by my estimate. While it appears that SVO is still the majority word order among the remaining clauses, there's no way to know whether more clauses need to be omitted. So that was a lot, but the bottom line is it's a, a similar um, critique, just that it's impractical to, to, to do what Homestead is suggesting, mainly because... And I kind of see this where Homestead is saying the operative pragmatic notions are topic and focus, but they're not the only pragmatic notions. So the question is, is he applying all the pragmatic categories that could be applied? Um, is he doing it consistently, et cetera? And secondly, even if he did do that, do we have enough data at the end? I think is kind of what Moshavi is getting at. So is is he taking into to account all the different sorts of pragmatics that you can have? And number two, does that leave us with enough data to conclude anything with? Right. And and are the pragmatic notions the only notions that we are going to say affect word order? Right. Right. And this is really where our third player comes in, um, Aaron. So Aaron Horncall, he you know goes back. And says, "Okay, you know, let's let's take another look at Schwerska's definition of what what a basic sentence is, right? And let's let's take another look at the data and see if Homestead was consistent with the basic word order criterion and and the data, right? And he says no. He just says like you." You actually should have deleted more clauses than you did before, right? And so, so, so that I, I think again is is an important point here. Um, that what what sentences are we looking at, right? What what's the the are we've we've reduced our corpus to sixty five sentences, right? And Moshavi says, well, you could just keep going, and yeah. Horncall says. I will, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he does, right? He just keeps deleting sentences until we get to, you know, his count, um, which is way, way less than um, 65. I, 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 the, his count is 11 unmarked SV sentences and 23 unmarked VS sentences in Genesis. So, you know, that's 34, right? So he cuts it in half. Right, and his point is that we need to apply Schwierzka's basic sentence criterion more strictly. Right, right. So exactly. So that two-step process we talked about: establish criteria, then apply criteria. Moshavi and Homestead differ a ton on step one, establishing criteria. But interestingly, Homestead and Horncall actually agree. So Horncall says that. Uh, the, that Homestead's filtering of the frequency data is indispensable and goes on to say that his methodology is arguably sound, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so Horncall, at least here, is happy to adopt Homestead's kind of set of criteria, which are frequency, distribution, basic sentence, and pragmatics. Horncall accepts that, but then says, you just applied it wrong. You did step right. two wrong. 
right? You got step one right. You got step two wrong. So, so yeah, you get you gave some of the data there. Um, what what do you think accounts for that difference in their application or their analysis? Like what what is going on behind the scenes there? Yeah. So this is where I think it actually gets fun, and and what's really actually important to people, right? What's important, you know, in this whole conversation, we we haven't actually looked at a sentence in biblical Hebrew yet, right? Right. <laughs> and that's that's really important, right? Mm-hmm. So so we've talked theoretically about a lot of different things. But until you get into the data, you know, you, you're, you're just talking about things. Um, so, so Horncall's point is, um, you know, you have 11 unmarked SV clauses. Whereas he says in, in Holmstead's original statistics, you had 47. So that is, there's a discrepancy there in, in 36 clauses, right? And in Holmstead's initial statistics, you had 26 unmarked VS clauses. And in Horncall's redo of the test, you have 23. So what you end up with is more unmarked VS than SV, right? Based on this rerun. And mm-hmm. his his point is that Homestead includes things like the a copula clause, right? You know, so if you see a copula clause um, and you see SV, then Homestead is including that in that 47 number. Right. But the problem is that that doesn't fit Swirska's definition of what a basic sentence is. So if we're going to filter out the sentences based on that definition, then we should filter out copula clauses. We shouldn't count those. Right. Is, that's, so that's, is there a specific point in Swirska's definition that that doesn't fit in that may not be obvious to some listeners or me? <laughs> right, right. So the um, if we just look at it, you know, stylistically neutral, independent, indicative clauses with full noun phrase participants where the subject is definite, agentive, and human, the object is a definite semantic patient. So it has to have an object, right? right. And and because a copula doesn't mm-hmm. have an object, it it is a, you know, it functions to connect a subject to the predicate, right? But the predicate is not the object. So that means, according to Swirska, you have to have a transitive verb, right? The boy hit the man, right? Like, the man is the object. Mm-hmm. And so the boy is, you know, a human wouldn't count in that in that criterion. Right. That's helpful. And and just a little bit more on that. So in part three of this series, we had a whole episode on uh, copular uh, clauses. And just to show you how complicated they can be and, and why you maybe shouldn't count them in your basic sentence criterion. So that's just kind of a fun episode you can listen to if you haven't yet. <laughs> I think the point of that whole episode, right, is to show, okay, even within copula clauses, there is variation in semantics, which may cause variation in word order, right? And and the the point here is, you do have to be very very careful about what what is our data set, right? What are we including in there, and what are we not? Right. So then you agree with Horncall that Homestead's count is wrong. So does that mean that Horncall's count is right and that we actually do have more unmarked VS versus unmarked SV? 
Or do you think there are problems with Horncall's application of the criteria? Right. So a couple of things here. I I would disagree with both of them that on the frequency point, right? So for me, when you if you were to have 11 genuinely unmarked SV sentences or clauses and 23 genuinely unmarked VS clauses, I would conclude that biblical Hebrew allows for an SVVS alternation, right? And, and so this is an important point, right? You, it is not the case that, you know, SV and VS are diametrically opposed, right? Mm-hmm. There are languages, I, Arabic is one, right? And, and this is actually um, Alison Kirk's dissertation on New Testament Greek, her claim is that VS and SV are both basic word orders in the sense that we have pragmatically neutral examples of both of those orders where something semantic is also not triggering a different order, right? So there is free variation between SV and VS in this sense. Right. Yeah, I mean, that that's a great point that just by definition if you define basic word order as pragmatically neutral, or even if you have a more robust notion definition that takes into account semantics and stuff too, um, frequency just doesn't actually work as a criterion because if there's any occurrence of it, of that thing in a neutral context, then it, it just by definition is basic. Um, right. So, so just to fit you into the equation, um, again, all three, Moshavi, Homestead, and Horncall, all adopt frequency, at least frequency, as a cri- criterion, um, whereas you're actually rejecting it as a criterion, and that obviously affects your analysis, your step two, because your step one is different. Right. So, so you know, for, for me, I would just say, okay, let's look at all, all of these clauses, right? Let's look at the 11, you know, supposedly unmarked SV clauses. Let's look at the 23 supposedly unmarked VS clauses, and let's see are these really unmarked, right? Because if if they are unmarked, truly, then I would conclude that you have this free variation. If if they are marked, then they shouldn't be included, right? So if you look at Horncall's data, right, we, we already said that, you know, he takes out copular clauses. I mean, he takes out copular clauses because they're not transitive, right? And Shariska says you have to have an object that is a definite semantic patient. So even then, right, you're going to throw out all kinds of transitive sentences where the object is not a patient, right? Which is this very specific thing. Um, so so there's all, I mean, there's all kinds of, of data, you know, that, that would be thrown out based on this, you know, Schwiska's, um definition of the basic or this basic sentence or criterion. So if you look at what Horn call, like, Horncall's remaining clauses, he he doesn't throw out all the ones that he needs to, right? To put it very simply. Um, so for example, he still includes intransitive sentences. So, you know, you you have all kinds of sentences with um with bo, right? Um come. And this is one that's that's also very problematic to use because it is what, what linguists would call an unaccusative. Um, it is a specific type of verb. It it behaves syntactically in a certain way. And it behaves much more like p- 
passives than other kinds of verbs. Um, so, so the point here is that Horncall himself really picks and chooses out of Schwerska's definition to, to, and, and I don't know if, you know, I'm not blaming him of doing this intentionally, <laughs> right? Um, but he doesn't go through all of them and say, well, you know, this, this clause doesn't have a definite agentive human and therefore we should throw it out, right? You would throw out pronouns too, right? You, you what, what you need is a full noun phrase, right? Ha-ish, right? A need doesn't work. You would throw that out. Um, so, so in, in Horncall's analysis itself, right, there are problems with, with how he applies Schwerska's criterion. So I think just to, sh- to illustrate what I'm talking about here, we can look at three criteria that is kind of implicit in Schwerska's definition that affects word order, right? So one would be a, a verb semantic class, okay? Um, so she says that the object must be a definite semantic patient, right? Which means that there are only some verbs that take patience as arguments, right? And and other verbs don't. And if you don't have that kind of verb, it might affect the order. So a very good example of this is verbs of speaking in English. So verbs of speaking can show VS order after a quote, even though the language itself is SV. So, you know, I can say... Um, that podcast was crazy, said Nick, right? <laughs> um, and, and and said is the verb, right? Whereas, and Nick is the subject. That's VS order. I can also say that podcast was crazy, Nick said, right? Where you have SV. And there, we seem to have free variation. It doesn't seem to be pragmatic. I, I can't, I mean, according to my native speaker intuitions, which <laughs> might might be wrong, but but the point here is that this only works in a very specific environment, right? Mm-hmm. You can't say, said Nick, that podcast was crazy, right? Once you move the the quotative you know, frame to the front of the clause, right? You can't do VS order anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so you can only do it in this very limited environment. You can also only do it with a certain class of verbs, right? Only verbs that talk about speaking. So the question is, right, what do we conclude for English about this? That VS is a basic order, right? Right. What what we do is we say, okay, for this class of verbs, right, you have this order sometimes, right? That's that's the that's actually what's going on. And and it doesn't necessarily affect our, you know, description of the language as a whole. If if you want to say that, you know, English is also VS. That's fine, right? But the way you got there right. was you looked at this very specific class and you said, oh, these are also pragmatically neutral. Right, right. So the point, it's a it's a semantic class in the sense that it's different different verbs that happen to do with speaking. So you could do the same with like exclaimed or shouted or anything like that. And the point is that it has this alternation, but um, we shouldn't include it in our in our data on basic word order because... Well, one, because you've shown that it behaves in a special way, not in a basic way. But number two, um, it does actually, um, it is eliminated by Schwarzkopf's defin- uh, criterion right. is the exactly, bottom line. Exactly. So, and that's that's the point here, right? Um, 
is that something like that will affect order. It, it just, it, we just know that it does. And that's the reason why Shvirska said that to begin with, right? Because we know in language after language that these kinds of things do affect the order. So, so are you saying, is, is there data that has this semantic class or that, or semantic classes like this in horn calls that horn call doesn't eliminate? Is that what yeah. you're saying? So, I mean, the, 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 a very, you know, this is a very easy one. If you look at, um, Horncall has 23 unmarked VS sentences and 12 of those begin with a quote, right? Oh, wow. So, so that, that brings our number down to 11, right? Mm -hmm. um, so just that eliminates over half of the clauses that Horncall says is unmarked, right? You can't, you can't count those, right? So, so the, the very basic reason is because um, we know that biblical Hebrew um, in subordinate clauses is is VS. And, and this is everyone's analysis, right? Horn calls analysis, Holmes says analysis, Decane's analysis. They all say that when there is something in that initial position, like, like a complementizer, then you have the verb first, mm -hmm. right? So when you have a quote, a quotative frame, right? You have something there. Often it's overt, le more, that's, a, basically a complementizer. Um, Vyomet is basically a complementizer. Um, and I say basically, I mean, I mean, in many languages, those actually grammaticalize to become complementizers. They introduce quotes. Um, it serves a grammatical function. The same thing is happening in biblical Hebrew. Um, and even when they're not there, something is there implicitly, right? It is, there is something there that's introducing that quote, right? right. Um, and we see that reflected in, in the order. Right. Right. So did you have, I think you had a couple other examples. Yeah. So, so the, the, the next big one, honestly, is, um, well, really voice and a verb syntactic class can kind of be lumped together in some ways. Um, but passive voice is, is known to be, um, it, not a good indicator of what's basic order. Because the subject in passive voice is the object in the corresponding active clause. Okay. Mm -hmm. So again, an example with with Nick, right? Um, the child hit Nick. Mm -hmm. You have Nick as the semantic patient, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what happens when you passivize that sentence? Nick was hit by the child. Nick remains the semantic patient. Okay. Right. And and so it still has that function. And what happens in some languages is, is that Nick just stays in the object position, right? It doesn't move to the front of the clause. It doesn't move to where the active subject is, right? It stays where the object is. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying, you know, um, the boy hit Nick, you might say, you know, was hit Nick. Right. Right. And in there, you keep the order in the active sentence the, the same as in the passive sentence. Right. Right. It's still after the verb because you have the same semantic role of Nick in both cases. Right. So the point here is that we actually see this happen in languages. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the related, um, 
uh, the, the related point here is that actually a verb's even broader than just voice is a verb syntactic class will affect the order. So this is well known. I mean, Lambert said this, you know, in 1994, he wasn't the first one to notice this. Um, but unaccusative verbs, for example, default to VS order in Italian, even though the basic order is SV. Okay, so what does that mean? Right? Unaccusative verbs are verbs that have a a subject. So they're they're intransitive verbs. Okay. So so we can define um you know just very basically we can say there's intransitive and transitive verbs, right? Transitive verbs have an object. The boy hit Nick, right? And then there are within intransitive verbs, there are some that are called unergative and some that are called unaccusative. So un unergative verbs are verbs with a with an agentive subject. And these are verbs like um, dance. Um, so the boy danced around the room or whatever. The boy is actively doing something. He's an agent there. Okay. Mm-hmm. There are other there are other kinds of intransitive verbs called unaccusative, where the the subject behaves more like an object. Mm-hmm. So these are verbs like come, um, where I can say something like the package came in the mail, where the package is is much more patient-like. These unaccusative verbs often allow for agentive subjects, right? You can say the boy came to the house, um, but but you 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 don't need an agentive subject, and and like unergative verbs, and and so the point here is that they actually behave more like passives in terms of word order, okay? Um, and so this is again why Shriska throws out those clauses, right? Because we know that if you were to look at them in Italian. Um, or in other languages like this, you know, you would see this VS order, but we know why, right? Because the the subject in unaccusative and passive verbs it has the same semantic role as an object, right? right. And so what you often have them, it, you often have them syntactically in object position. Okay. So if you look at unaccusative and passive verbs, you throw out eight clauses. Right. Okay. Um, so and, and some of those I mean, I think one or two overlap with the beginning of the quote thing. Um, so, but but regardless, we're we're whittling down, right? Our clauses. Um, the the last you know sort of big category where you know if you just look at the data, right? You you can just throw out clauses are are with hine. So after hine. Now hine is is interesting because, um, you know, like. It, there's debate on how it affects order, but the point is that it's not pragmatically neutral, right? So if if you if you say you know, look, this happened, right? Those kinds of sentences are not your stylistically neutral sentences, right? Right. And so if we're again taking Schwierzka's criterion as it stands, right? Mm-hmm. We have to throw out hine clauses. We have to throw out beginning of the quote you know, clauses that come at the beginning of a quote, we have to throw out unaccusative verbs and passives. And that leaves us with one example. So, so that's Genesis 21, 25. Um, and, and my analysis of that would be that it's, it's pragmatics, right? If, if I, if I didn't think it was pragmatics and, you know, I might think it was, um, not pragmatics. <laughs> um, but, but if I didn't think that I would think 
that VS is a possible basic order, right? VS is a possible paramatically neutral order, and that's fine, right? Um, but but Genesis twenty one twenty five, um, you know, it says Ve'ochiach Avraham, and it seems like in the context, you know, so uh, that's um, you know Abraham re- rebuked um, at Avimelech, um, Avimelech, right? Um, so this this actually also wouldn't fit. Um, Suriska's criterion, um, because uh, the the technically you're not dealing with a, a true patient here, um, and you have two, um, you know, um, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, what, what, how you define a full noun phrase? If, if you're including proper names, you know, you you may or may not include that, um, but let's just say that it is right um, in the context, right? Um, Abraham just swore that he would be, um, he would have chesed for Avimelech, right? So he would be, you know, we'll just say nice to him. We'll just translate it that way for right now. Um, but, but, but the, the, the point here is that then you have immediately after you have Abraham rebuking. And so there seems to be this contrast between, um, what Abraham just did. He swore that he would, he would, um, be faithful to Avimelech, um, and what Abraham is now doing, and and that contrast, I would say, accounts for the verb being fronted, you know, and and I would translate it something like, you know, but Abraham rebuked Avimelech, right? Where I would put focus or stress on on rebuke, and and say that that's actually what's being focused. Right, right. So with that analysis, you you're able to say then, so your count for unmarked. VS is zero now. Zero that. for sure. And and yeah, your count that, that would for, be my count. Uh, right. 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 And your but your count according to the same criteria that that everyone else is using. There is no getting around if if you if you apply Shriska's criterion strictly, there there is no getting around getting rid of all the examples except maybe Genesis twenty one twenty five. Right? There would at most be one. Right. And so, um, but then you're left, what's your count for unmarked SV then? Yeah. So when you apply Shuiska's count more strictly to the SV data, you also get a lower number and you, um, you're left with one like good example, one like uh, halfway decent example, um, and then a lot of bad examples, right? Um, so, you know, many of them are just simply intransitive. So, so again, with intransitive verbs, we know that word order is being affected, right? Um, one, the the one like okay example is Genesis um, fourteen eight. It says, "Umalki serek melech shalem hotzi lechem v'yain." So, the reason why that's only okay is because. Um, the object is um, lechem v'yain, so it's it's bread and wine, not a definite semantic patient. Um, but that being said, you know, like it's still pretty good. Um, <laughs> you 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 have a you have a, a verb that is um, giving you an action, right? So that that's much better than um, like. Hokiach, for example, which is like rebuking, which is, um, you know, those kinds of uh, more, those verbs that 
convey more like emotions or um, not not physical events in the world will often have different orders. Um, so so this is this is better than the one example from VS. Um, and and you know you also have the Melech Shalem in opposition to Malki Tzedek, which you you know you don't really want in a basic um, word order uh, question. But that being said, like I, it's it's fairly decent. So the other one that's that's better is Genesis thirty six two. Um, so if we just look at this one, um, we have Esav. So Esau lakach et nashav mi benot kinaan. Um, so this is this is more of what we want. Um, we have Esau, and just says that he took wives um, from the the daughters of Canaan. Um, so so this is um, the kind of verb that we want, even though this is an idiomatic way of saying married, right? So it's not the sense of that we want with this verb, um, but it's the kind of verb that we do want. And in the context, it doesn't seem to be, um, you know, doing anything special pragmatically. Mm-hmm. Esau was already mentioned in the discourse, ve'ele toldot esav, hu edom. So this was, that's the previous sentence, you know, so it introduces the ge- genealogy or generations of um, Esau. He is Edom. Right, and then it says Esau took blah 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 blah. Um, so, so this is the best example. Um, and Genesis fourteen eighteen, I think, is is also like fairly decent. Um, that being said, okay, so 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 what I would conclude from this is that you know I only need two examples, right? For for for, for my for my analysis, I would say okay, well, if if these are not pragmatically neutral, and someone maybe someone could, could convince me that they are. Um, if these are not, though, then I would say, okay, well, SV is a possible, you know, basic order in Biblical Hebrew, right? That's what I would conclude. Um, that being said, I I, I think this discussion, um, I, I I would just reject the frequency thing, right? We're, we're, we're not just like looking for the heuristics criteria then like figuring out which clause is most frequent, right? Mm-hmm. Um what the question I would ask in each of these cases is what are these things doing to the word order? What are these different parameters um, doing to the basic order? So for example, passive, if we accept that the object is normally after the verb, right? What passive is going to do or an unaccusative, right? They're going to have a tendency to, to, to create VS order. So for me, when I look, look then at, um, passive examples. I, I don't really care about heuristics criteria criteria in a basic. Um, I would just say, okay, so passive, um, if I just look at all the passive examples, what I would expect is a, a greater tendency to have VS. Um, if if there were pragmatically neutral sentences in VS order, and I actually think that there are, um, then I could not conclude that the the active counterpart um, would be VS. Um, but, but if there are SV examples of passive, um, then, and those seem to be pragmatically neutral, that would be a strong indication that, that in reality, SV must be a neutral order because passive would have a tendency to go to, to create VS sentences, not Mm -hmm. SV. So, so when we're looking at these criteria, what we're asking 
what we should be asking is what what would a a non-indicative clause mm-hmm. do to the word order? A non-indicative clause would normally, you know, push the verb to the front. We see that in language after language, right? When you have um, optative clauses, you have the verb at the front, even in English. When, when you have questions, right? In English, you have an inverted word order. So, so, so the question is, what do these kinds of different clause types, different verb forms, what, what does each one possibly do to the clause? And then what word order do we see? Okay, so, so that's the whole point here is we want to figure out how syntax and meaning interplay. And in order to do that, we have to figure out first, what do we expect to happen when we have a certain clause type or a certain verb type? And if we expect SV for that clause type and we have VS, then we have to ask uh, ourselves why, right? And vice versa. Right. And and that kind of, in some ways, takes us back. I mean, it, it, it kind of removes the question of what's basic in a helpful way. Um, it kind of makes me think of Moshavi you know, you're still saying we need to deal with all the clause types and how they behave. And it kind of makes me think of Moshavi's critique of like, that's just very involved, I think is, is the word. And, and ra- rather than to our listeners, I think rather than thinking of that as a critique, maybe take it up as a challenge, right? Is, yeah, is yeah. that's what, what the field needs is, is actually perhaps less debate about what's basic and more analysis, just more of taking all the clause types and, you know, like even even this count that you just did where it ended, you ended up having two SV, zero VS or, you know, some variation there. Um, that's only dealing with Genesis data, right, at right, this point. Right. So, so, I mean, there's still just so much more to do. Yeah, and it's not it's not just, you know, let's do all the homework so we can figure out what, you know, what to call biblical Hebrew, SV or VS. But also, you know, this affects the way you read the Bible and understand it, right? Um, and and that's that's the whole point here is um if if you know i i have not done this right i know that unaccusatives and passives for example um have a tendency across languages to have vs order and i do think yeah i mean i i think i can point you to examples within biblical hebrew where um the order is affected because of that right right um you have vs order because of an unaccusative or a passive verb um that being said i am Definitely not aware of a large-scale corpus study on even the clauses in Genesis to see, okay, how what are these clauses doing, right? What kinds of environments do we see VS order? What kinds of environments do we see SV order? Um, and, and, and again, how does that interface with all the other parameters that we've talked about, like pragmatics, right? So, so I think I think Holmstead is actually a really good example of this his paper on ruth at the end of that paper he he says um you know that th- there's a clause with a passive right and he says well this has to be a a focused verb right and and he says it because in his theory he he doesn't account for passives potentially being in free variation between vs and sv order which i would say they are Right. And so he gives us, you know, one or two paragraph explanation on why this verb is in focus position. I would say it's just not right. Like just just it's just it's just not. I mean, it could still be right. I mean, if if you have VS order in theory, um, but I would say he he has to read that into the context because his analysis demands it. And 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 I 
you know, personally, I, I wouldn't read that into the context. Um, but that's just a, a really simple example of how, you know, once we do establish what these different clause types are doing, it, it does affect um, our our reading of, of the text. Yeah, yeah. And, and just on a really practical level, we don't do a lot of shameless Biblingo plugs, but I'll, I'll do one here is um, the way that I think you deal with this and kind of the curriculum we have in Biblingo is um, for every single grammar topic that's introduced, you deal with different linguistic categories and one is syntax. And so every single grammar topic you're learning, you learn any kind of syntactic information that's important for that grammar topic. And so just at a practical level, I think that corresponds to kind of what what you're suggesting is that, again, there is maybe a place for the basic conversation, but the most important thing is just knowing what syntax corresponds to what, you know, meaning, semantics, pragmatics, or, or, or whatever else. Um, on a practical level, when you're learning Hebrew, that's going to be a lot more helpful in terms of when you're reading the text, knowing what to expect and what not to expect and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and just, you know, to to point out, like, um, everyone agrees that Vital is VS. Everyone agrees that the participle is SV. And the and, and Vekatal is also VS. So that leaves us with two verb forms, Katal and Yiktol that are potentially different. And Holmstead and Horncall both say that they're potentially unmarked. <laughs> so just in theory, like you, I mean, according to both of their analyses, you would have unmarked SV and VS sentences. And, and so, you know, I, I, it's it's funny that you bring up Biblingo because I've gotten pushback on, well, what is, is biblical Hebrew really SV or is it really VS? But, but, the 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 point here is <laughs> according to these scholars which you know obviously i i've just said I, I disagree with 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 how they're doing some things um but but that being said they both w- would would advocate for either order for katal and yiktol and all the other orders are or all the other verb forms are are agreed upon um so so it is it, I, and this is one way where i i, I think there is much more agreement in the field than than people than than people are led to believe by hearing the discussion, right? Um, and, and I think that's 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 unfortunate because like it, it is, you know, kind of a, a dividing line. Um, and you know, I I know all of these people personally, right? And, yeah. And and I I know their analyses and and um and and it's just it's unfortunate that um you know, these kinds of conversations can be um, very touchy because it really does make us better, right? When when Horncall w- goes back through and looks at all the data, I mean, he did everyone a great service. I didn't do that for for, for Holmstead's data. I, I mean, I, I had read the paper and I said, I just believe the guy. <laughs> and, and so, but but the fact that Horncall says, hey, maybe you're missing something is, is fantastic. Um, and 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 that's the, you know again the kind of thing that we've done here as well, um, but but the the point here is, um, I, I think the field is is you know even even if it doesn't seem like it is progressing. We we are coming to to a better understanding and more agreement on these things. Um, and and what Horncall said is we need to you know further refine our categories, further you know 
I mean, look at Churiska's definition again and take it more seriously, right? And that's exactly what I'm proposing as well. Let's let's be more careful about the different kinds of syntactic environments that we're looking at, the different semantic, you know, parameters that that might be affecting the order, um, and then let's let's look again at the data. Yeah, yeah. That's all we have time for on this episode of the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. Thanks for listening.